The reading for the day comes from Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. But as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We're in this series called Pack Light, where we're talking about what it means to journey with the Israelites out of captivity in, England, in Egypt and into freedom. We've been facing these patterns of collective violence and what it means to move past patterns of violence into a promised land. Last week, we talked about leaving um, the plagues behind and what it means to actually move all the way through an emotion, move through it in your body, because the wounds we carry are not just in our memory, but in our physical beings. And this week, we want to apply some of that knowledge, that deep embodied knowledge of, of the need to move through feelings of pain. And we want to analyze that on a systemic scale. We carry those wounds and fears with us, and we do that in our bodies, but we also transmit them to others. I'd actually like to start today with a story about an experiment with rhesus monkeys in 1966. There was an experimenter uh, who gave some monkeys utensils to play with. And as they would play with them, he would send a, a forceful air blast on these monkeys to condition them to be afraid of these utensils. And so they stopped. They stopped touching even um, these utensils, and they, they would be very afraid of them. Now, the experimenter stopped blasting them with air and introduced a new monkey into the living environment who had never had that kind of terrorizing experience. When the new monkeys would go and try and play with those utensils, the monkeys who had been terrorized, who had lived through the violence of that that blast, they would stop the monkeys who were playing. They would do so by uh, creating fear. Oftentimes they would, they would um, growl or bare their teeth. One monkey even dragged another physically away from the utensils for fear of the air blast, which never came. These new monkeys became afraid of the utensils as well. And after that conditioning had been passed on, the experimenter put them in, in um, units by themselves without the original monkey who had received the air blast, just the one who had been taught to fear the utensils, and observed that these monkeys stayed away too. They had internalized that fear that had come from this other monkey's experience. That fear was being replicated and passed on. Even the monkeys who did play with the utensils tended to do so timidly, less often, and with anxiety. 
hurt people hurt people is a phrase that we've been told before. But what does that mean on a systemic scale? What does it mean when monkeys who have learned that they have been terrorized start to pass that information on to others, usually out of fear, recreating systems of pain or domination or obedience, as with the monkeys, out of fear that they might be dominated or terrorized again. This is where we go back to the Bible and to the Israelites. Because we've been focusing on the Israelites in their preparations to leave Egypt, to leave captivity and slavery, to go towards that promised land that God has called them into. So what happens? What happens when they leave empire behind, when they walk away from Pharaoh, when they leave their captivity, the system of violence and domination that had had kept them and shaped them for generations? When they left, they went into unoccupied land and created a utopia where power was shared and the means of production were collectivized and all oppression ceased. Just kidding, they committed genocide. Like, genocide. You heard the scriptures today, let, let nothing that breathes survive is the mess- main message here. Kill everything in sight. For the sake of their own material safety, which had not been guaranteed or even an option for generations and generations, they recreated a system just like the one they left, except now they were on top. They went further to murder to destroy, to obliterate. And in the disturbing scripture today, the narrative we have, the story that gets told over and over again, is that they did this because God instructed them to. This is a really big problem. <laughs> Historians actually have, ge- have evidence that that genocide didn't happen that in the um, movement of the Israelites through the region, there were conflicts and skirmishes, but there was also, against the tellings of scripture, intermarrying and um, different kinds of culture building and power struggles and domination and oppression. There was no actual obliteration of the Canaanites. And while this is better for those Canaanites that didn't get totally obliterated, it's actually potentially worse for future generations because it creates this mythology, this narrative of divine blessing to dominate and colonize. Now, I want us to pause here for a moment and really let it sink in that what I'm telling you is that the Bible is communicating something horrific and that I believe that this part is wrong. I know that that's a lot to take in, that the Bible instructed God's people to commit genocide. And it says, God said to you, kill all these people, men, women, children, animals, anything that breathes. That's what our scriptures say. And if you want to look deeper into the scriptures we've quoted today, there are more of them, and they're awful. And so what I'm telling you, as your pastor, is I believe that that part of scripture is wrong. If you've been here at Zao for a while, you may have heard this come up before, that we believe that the Bible is a beautiful, inspired document of God's people. We believe it is a tool and a means of God's grace. We believe it is an invitation into the love of God. And 
We believe that it was created by sinful human beings, doing our best to capture our experiences of the divine, to record the histories that we've lived, to tell stories generationally. And just like the people who wrote it, compiled it, passed it on, edited it, the scriptures are full of brokenness, full of sin, full of obscure, uh, of, of obscurities or, or places where the truth of the gospel gets laid over with the sin of domination and empire. And we mourn this. Does it mean that we throw the Bible away? Does it mean that we say that the Bible is worthless? Not at Zao. At Zao, it means that we need to bring all the more resources to the Bible, all the more thoughtfulness to say, what in here is of God? What in here is of us and our beautiful relationship with God? And what in here is evil? What in these scriptures has been twisted for the purposes of justifying evil in humanity's history? You see, the Bible, sometimes it's talked about as a love letter, a love letter from God to you. And while that's very sweet, it's really a lot more complicated than that. I talk sometimes about how the Bible isn't a single book. It's 66 or more or less, depending on which tradition you're involved in. And it's really more of a collection, a library of stories and poems and letters, of histories and laws, trying to piece together a memory of who God is and who we are, a collective memory which contradicts itself and folds back on itself and justifies the actions of its authors. And this is what's happening here, because one of the themes of the Bible is people trying to make sense of what's happening to them and what they've done. Domination is actually a really common theme in the Bible, both of the victory and conquering side and the being conquered side. There's a lot of portions of scripture talking about how the people are going to be conquered by their enemies. That mostly comes up in the prophets who are saying, hey, you're going to lose your power and empire. And they're trying to understand that by saying, well, it's God's will because you guys suck. Now, the prophets are cool because the prophets are saying, the reason you suck as a nation, as a body, is because you're not caring for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for the alien. And so the prophets take this beautiful um, theology of justice of systemic justice and apply it to understanding the world around them, saying the evil that we are subject to is brought about by our own sinfulness, which isn't wrong. And we take that. We take that beauty and truth. But I believe we must reject the parts of the prophets whom I love that say, well, because we screwed up, God cast us out of God's favor and God let other people dominate, conquer, and terrorize us. I think we have to reject that part. That's part of the making sense of what happened, was to sort of take the will of God as a catch-all for anything that happened in history, and then sort of explain backwards from there. Does that mean that the prophets are devoid of meaning? Absolutely not. The prophets are rich and beautiful and have so much to teach us about how to live well. But that thread justifying the domination and conquer of, of a body, even from the, the conquered side, is wrong. And similarly, the stories in the scriptures 
valorizing that kind of domination and those sort of battles, saying God brought us into this place so that we could slaughter everyone, that's wrong too. On the whole, the scriptures do have a tendency to look at history and say God must have wanted it that way, so why could that possibly be? But really, especially in the case of, for instance, the Israelites conquering Canaan, they're creating a narrative to justify evil and the evils of history. These weren't narratives that emerged during the conflicts between the Israelites and the Canaanites. These are narratives that emerged generations afterward. And that's why they were blown into mythology that said, and we really won and we killed everyone. That wasn't real. Neither was the part where God told them to do it. But we create these narratives to justify our evil by assigning agency and will to God instead of human beings. And the consequences of this are enormous and generational and historic. This very passage was used by European colonizers of the Americas to justify the genocide of indigenous peoples. Again, with some made-up nonsense about how God told them to do it. In a more secular example of creating these sorts of justifying narratives, we have slavery in the United States. Slavery was the system upon which our economy as a country is built. People pretty much agree on that. And it was a really awful, dehumanizing, evil practice, and people agree on that. But the part that we tend to forget is that slaveholders justified their evil by inventing concepts of race and stratifying God's people by saying that some races, which didn't really exist in that same way until slavery was being justified, they said some races are better than others and black folks are at the very bottom. How convenient for those folks who have dominated and oppressed black folks. We need to understand that these are evils that are perpetuated by material, um, material motivations. That the slaveholders did not first decide that they were going to be white supremacists and then, and then create slavery as an institution based on that justification. They created the system of slavery so that they could gain material benefits and build an economy on stolen labor with stolen and kidnapped lives. And then said, ooh, this doesn't really fit with our whole narrative of like liberty and justice for all, so these people must not be people. And we gotta figure out how to get all the other people who benefit from this on board. There's an incredible book um, called Racecraft it's complicated and, um, and really, really beautiful uh, and thoughtful. And it's by Karen Fields and Barbara Fields. And it's a collection of essays they wrote on the, the concepts of race, where that comes about, how race as a social construction actually is made to justify these material um, systems of domination and oppression rather than the other way around, which is the narrative that we've been given in this country, that there is a conflict between white and black people, and therefore, out of racism, white folks 
um, historically did horrible, horrible, never now, did horrible things to black people, rather than what they argue is the other way around, that white folks did horrible things to black people and invented concepts of race and social constructions of race to justify it. I'll share a quote with you. Probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. One historian has gone so far as to call slavery the ultimate segregator. He does not ask why Europeans seeking the ultimate method of segregating Africans would go to the trouble and expense of transporting them across the ocean for that purpose when they could have achieved the same end so much more simply by leaving the Africans in Africa. This quote is from the Field Sisters um, essay, Slavery, Race, and Ideology in the USA. And they talk about this history and the narratives and mythologies used to justify horrific systems of evil including the transatlantic slave trade. Like the narrative of God's orders for the genocide of Canaan, the narratives of race and race construction and racial superiority came generations after the fact to justify what was done for material and economic gain and then had enormous consequences as those narratives took hold and created more and more elaborate systems of domination and evil. We created new myths in this country, myths about upward mobility, maybe rosier myths, the American dream, individualism, and work ethic. And those myths were actually designed to paper over the other uglier myths, to say, oh, our beautiful, thriving economy, which is working so well for so many people in this world, was built on hard work and chutzpah, we are approaching um, MLK Day this weekend. Other than Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr. is probably the figure most people like to quote out of context for their own gain most often. And as you enter this MLK weekend, I want to start you off, maybe not start you off, it's Sunday, but I want to, to frame what you might be seeing in some of your threads this weekend and tomorrow with one of my favorite, uh, with a quote from one of my favorite speeches that Martin Luther King gave. He wrote, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. This quote is part of MLK's speech, Three Evils of Society, which he gave in 1967, just months before his assassination. The three evils, he names them as racism, economic exploitation, which he names explicitly as capitalism, and militarism. And that right there is why King was murdered because he saw all three of those evil systems as intertwined. 
They murdered the man who saw the systems behind the false mythology, not the man who dreamed we could all hold hands. He saw how these evils fed one another and how our mythologies obscured the realities of harm. I want to go back to the end of that quote. He says, capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white. This is the thing that truly terrified the establishment who was in power and benefiting from those systems. Martin Luther King Jr. was starting to build solidarity between black folks and working class white folks, showing how these overlapping systems of oppression actually feed into one another. That domination works with many different arms and tentacles to keep so many in service of the few at the top. And this is where we get into some of these fractures that the system really relies on to keep us feeling segregated in our own oppression. We know here at Zao, hopefully, the realities of white privilege. If we don't, ra raise a hand and someone will surely be happy to have a respectful conversation with you, helping you understand what we mean when we talk about white privilege. But one of the reasons it's so hard for some folks to see the realities of white privilege is that mixed in with that very real privilege is a lot of exploitation for a lot of white people. Generations have been exploited and dominated and used for systems which have nothing but contempt for them. Poor and working class white folks have been dominated for generations in this country. And the trade-offs that they get for, for being white and poor, they all mix together. And these are the ways that systems of domination recreate themselves because they say, well, I'm being stepped on by this person, but I can at least step on this person. And that violence surges through our bodies as we recreate it to feel some amount of power, some amount of freedom from that domination by dominating others. These systems of power, privilege, and oppression are feeding on suffering. And in our country, we can see the effects of feeding on the suffering of poor white people. The support of the alt-right and fascism by poor white people has been well established. And that's not just here in the States. That's in fascism all over the world. Historical fascist movements get their power by, by playing to the fears of domination from people who have been dominated economically. So what we saw last week at the Capitol, this insurrection, so-called, failed, was a fusing of this generational violence and domination with religious narratives of God's mandate to dominate as a form of expression of being set free. That freedom from oppression means that you will become the oppressor and that that is the promised land. The genocide is the promised land you are looking for when you come out of captivity. We know that that mob was fueled in part by working class white folks and they were singing church songs they were waving the Christian flag with nooses and scaffolding 
ready to execute Congress people in the name of their fascist leader and their God who promised them freedom by way of domination and violence. If you haven't seen any images yet of just how infused people's faith mythologies are, these mythologies of conquering with the blessing of God are with that insurrection last week, I'd like to show you a video that one of our community members shared with us. If you didn't catch what was written on that first sign in the clip, it said, Thank you, Lord, Donald versus Goliath. The mythologies of oppressed becoming the victor that disguise the realities of oppressed or harmed people using every opportunity to become an oppressor and to violate and to dominate others this is alive and real in humanity right now. And this stuff is generational. And it comes out at every level. We saw what happened when a bunch of people got together and took their narratives of white supremacy and took their narr narratives of manifest destiny and I am owed by God and God is with me and we will dominate and took that as a mob to the halls of power. That's what we saw last week. But what we see every day is people who have experienced generational violence or domination or oppression lashing out and dominating, committing violence against, against and oppressing anyone who is deemed less than or lower on the totem pole. And these systems of violence just create themselves over and over again. And they live, as we learned last week, in our bodies. Remember the monkeys. We teach this to one another. We carry it in our bodies. We recreate it long after the original threat is gone. We don't want to be dominated. And our reaction, as we've been taught, is to use fear and intimidation to dominate others. Friends, we can be as enlightened in our minds as we want, but what about our bodies? How many of us have relatives who still are living who speak the same rhetoric as those who, dominate, who dominated at the Capitol last week? We have, all of us, in our collective history, in our DNA, in our ancestry, we have violence and domination that has been passed on to us. We have those memories of what it means to prefer being the dominator the oppressor, to being the one dominated and oppressed. All of us, differently, have suffered generational trauma and violence at the hands of domination systems, and we are encouraged at any opportunity to recreate it. Evil and fear want to recreate themselves in systems of new oppression in order to protect us. It's a twisted form of self-protection because we don't want to be at the bottom anymore. 
and whether our being at the bottom has been generational and persistent or is some collective memory, our defense is to be aggressive and violent so that that never happens to us or it doesn't happen to us anymore. So many of us who would decry what happened at the Capitol last week have violent fantasies of revenge and domination. It's wild to me that those of us who are saying things like abolish the police are also celebrating at the arrest of people who have been at the Capitol or even secretly taking some satisfaction in seeing someone else for once be gunned down by the police. And I don't name that to say, um, to say shame, shame. I name that to say that like there are many folks who are not on that side of things that are feeling this way, that are having those systems of violence and domination bubble up inside us because there is this moment of what if we were in charge? What if we could be the ones on top? I understand that there is a difference too between using the only systems of accountability we have, like arrest, and taking actual glee and delight in someone getting, coming to them, what has come to us for so long. But those reactions, understandable, are those same systems of violence and domination creeping up in us. And you don't have to go too far on the left to find a lot of excited jokes about guillotines and the first ones against the wall when the revolution comes. And if you think, oh my gosh, I would never, I would never joke about publicly executing um, you know, leaders or people who have dominated, how many of us have laughed or reveled at a joke about punching Nazis? It's, it's in us. This, this desire to not be dominated comes out in our culture in the only way that we know how, which is to say, what if I was the one dominating you? What if it was me on top? And I don't want to create a false equivalency between the violent fantasies of the oppressed and the violent actions of the oppressors. The violent actions of the oppressors are much more clearly wrong, and the violent fantasies of the oppressed are understandable. However, what we are wanting, what we are advocating, what we dream of in the kingdom is a shift in power, is a rising up of the lowly and a casting down the mighty from their thrones. We have a faith that things will not always be this way and that at some point we will have power. But what are we doing now? What are we doing now to ensure that when we get power, we are different? This is the task of Christian discipleship preparing our hearts, moving through our bodies to break those cycles of power and domination, dealing with our grief and the violence that has been heaped upon us for generation after generation, that has been shuffled among us for generation, dealing with the guilt and shame of the violence committed by our ancestors, working through that so that when the day comes, 
that the power structures are shifted, we don't recreate those systems of domination. And we actually do build a kingdom that is a different kind of way. Remember those monkeys? Well, it turns out that some of them didn't recreate those systems of domination and fear. In fact, some of the terrorized monkeys saw their new monkey friends come in and play with the utensils and not get hurt. And they slowly, curiously, started to engage again. The fear was eased in their bodies as they learned from another who acted differently, not out of fear, but in a naive sort of hope, who learned not to terrorize and suppress the new way, but learned from the example of others who hadn't internalized that terror yet. Now, we can't bring in, introduce new naive human beings who have never carried the terror of violence, whether committed or, or held and taken. We can't bring new, unaffected human beings into our system. But we can do the work to process through those feelings which are held in our very beings, in our very bodies, and not pass it on to future generations or pass, pass on diminished harm to future generations and give them the tools to do even better. This is the reason why last week's sermon had to precede this one. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, go back. Uh, I really encourage you to watch it. We um, had the, our service was somehow um, censored, um, and so we had to take down the whole service, but we put up just the sermon. You can also always listen to our sermons on our podcast. But that sermon is about how to move through the things that are stuck in our bodies, why they get stuck in our bodies, and what we need to do to create patterns of release. Because this violence, it actively involves our bodies, and we can be as evolved and enlightened in our minds as we want, but we have to work through this, that we carry these wounds. I've talked a lot about therapy and how important therapy is to me, and I want to tell you about one more specific kind of therapy that engages this kind of thing. There are somatic therapies, that is, therapies that are engaged in both the mind and the memory and the body, that, for instance, engage those feelings that are, are trapped in us from trauma. So one of the experiences that a lot of us have when we face something violent or dangerous or traumatizing is fight, flight, or freeze. And I want to work with flight real quickly. If you think that you are in danger and going to die, one of the things that your body will do is tell you to run. Tell you to run as far and as hard and as fast as you can. And if, while you were being traumatized, you were unable to run, that feeling, I need to run, I need to run, I need to run, just gets tucked away in your body somewhere. And maybe it's that thing at the base of your throat. And maybe it's that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Maybe it's that pain that won't go away in your shoulder or your hip, but it is tucked away in your body somewhere telling you you have to run for your life. And somatic therapy says, well, let's find a way for you to release 
that feeling, that experience. And so in therapy, there are some therapists who will have you talk through that experience of trauma and bring up that feeling of needing to run and they will, with your consent, hold your feet and, and work with you to like recreate the sensation of running in your body, to tell your body, I'm running, I'm running, I'm releasing this feeling, I am moving through it, I am safe now. I ran away, I did the thing my body told me to do. And so we may need to get really creative in working through the violence in our bodies. We may need to run, we may need to scream, we may need to play out those violent fantasies in our heads, if only to get to the other side of them so that we can decide in healed bodies how not to create systems of violence. And this isn't just in, spirit, or in uh, secular therapy practices. Spiritual practices forever have engaged the body. And some of the practices that we have forgotten as a modern community are some of the most physical. Fasting for long periods of time, was a very dramatic way to get in touch with the body, with the needs and longings of the body and process through it. Pilgrimage is another, the long journey of the body walking and moving towards healing. There are ways that God has invited us to be in our bodies and to release. Again, going back to last week for some of those strategies, they involve breathing and moving noticing what's happening and releasing it to God intentionally. Because that violence, it is contained within us. And it's not our fault, it's our reality. And we can't go, go over it. And we can't go underward, under it. We gotta work through it. Just like on that bear hunt, can't go over it, can't go under it. We've gotta work through it in our bodies and break the cycle. When we are leaving Egypt, we need to unpack our violence. If we don't, we'll carry it with us. But if we do, we can leave behind the domination of Egypt as we move forward towards a different kind of promised land. Will you pray with me? God, there are ways that evil has been passed on to us, these inherited sins. God, we pray that you would work with us to expel them from our bodies, not to fear them, not to project onto other people, not to ignore them and, and end up spraying our violence elsewhere in the world. But God, we pray that you would teach us collectively and individually and through prayer and practice to move, to move through the violence within us, to release it to you, God, and to be healed. God, we pray that when we do the work of healing, that we can change these systems, that we can break these systems of domination, and that we can form the imagination and the ability to be community in a different kind of way. God, may your kingdom come May it come in each of us, in our very beings, as we seek to be a part of the kingdom you are building. In your name we pray. Amen.